be looking today at verses 12 through 26. Luke chapter 6, 12 through 26. Let's give our attention to the reading and the hearing of God's holy, inspired, and an errant word. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12, whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured and all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's pray. <clears throat> Excuse me. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, O oh God, for preserving it for us that we might have it this day. Thank you, O oh God, for working in our hearts by your Holy Spirit to reveal truth to us. We come to you this morning hungry for truth, the truth contained in your word. We come hungry for Jesus Christ, to live for him and to love him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We also come dependent upon your spirit, that by your spirit, oh God, you would teach us and train us and correct us, even rebuke us for righteousness sake. Help us to live for you. And Father, I pray that you would be with your people this day. May the preaching of the word be an encouragement unto them. And I pray that you would help me, your servant. Oh God, protect me from error. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, oh God. You are my rock and my redeemer. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
also as I've been preparing to travel to Zambia later this week, I've spent some time reading about David Livingston. Uh, for those of you who may not be familiar with him, David Livingston was a 19th century Scottish physician, an explorer, an abolitionist, and a missionary to Africa. It was he who first preached the gospel to the tribes located in what is now called Zambia. And it was he whose Western eyes were the first to behold Victoria Falls, the magnificent waterfall along the Zambezi River that now forms the natural border between Zambia and Zimbabwe. And while Livingston was renowned around the world for many things, it was his zeal his zeal for Christ's glorious kingdom that best defined who he was as a person. Physician, explorer, abolitionist, missionary, he wanted to be known as Christ's, as belonging to Jesus. Livingston was born into poverty Yet he was gifted with intellect and ingenuity that could have granted him a life of wealth and a life of leisure. But instead, he chose to forsake the riches and the privileges of this world in order to make Jesus Christ known to those who had never even heard his name before. Because of his passionate explorer spirit, he was not only apt to take roads that others were not, but if you've read about David Livingston, you know that he often had to create new roads just so he could go to where he believed that God was telling him to go. In fact, it, with one famous exchange that he had with his home mission office back in London, he had these words to say about those who were inquiring to join him in his work. This is what he said. If you have men who will only come if they know there is a good road, I don't want them. I want men who will come even if there's no road at all. David Livingston knew the cost of following Jesus where he was at. He knew what it took to be one who was willing to lose it all for the sake of making Jesus known to the interior tribes of Africa. He knew the kind of men he needed to help because he was that kind of man himself. In our text this morning here in Luke 6, we find Jesus, the father's greatest apostle. We find Jesus in the process of calling those out from among his group of disciples who will serve him, who will serve him as his own apostles. Jesus knew what kind of men he was seeking for the task. And he certainly knew that the road that lied ahead of them would be hard. In fact, it would be a road constructed where there was no road at all. But above all, Jesus knew that the cost of being his disciple would be great. For in a way similar to his very own, being his apostle would end up costing them, or at least most of them, their very earthly lives. 
The passage we just read, Luke 12, or six, excuse me, 12 through 26, naturally divides into two sections. So we'll study it that way together this morning. The first section is verses 12 through 16. And if you're taking notes and wanna write down point one, it's very simply the choosing of the 12. The choosing of the 12. We often forget that in the early days of his ministry, Jesus had a very large gathering of followers. Those who the gospel writers commonly call disciples or students. For example, look down just a few verses to verse 17. You'll see there that Luke says that Jesus has around him, and I quote, a great crowd of his disciples. You see, so amazing was the work that Jesus was doing. Think about his work, his authoritative preaching, his exorcisms, his healing. So amazing was this work that multitudes were seeking him out and they were following him. And even beyond people following him for these reasons, don't forget there were also those whom Jesus had personally invited to follow him. Those like Simon Peter, and Levi or Matthew, men we've already spent time discussing in prior passages. And so it's from this great number of disciples that Jesus was to call those who would serve as his apostles. Looking out across these disciples, he was to choose 12. Look at verse 13 again. And when day came, he called his disciples, the group, and he chose from the group of disciples, 12 whom he named apostles. Beyond being a disciple, these 12 would be tasked with a role of great significance. In the ancient world, an apostle was one who was, you might say, bathed in authority. One who was officially sent out to function as an emissary, or we might say an ambassador, or maybe just simply a representative of someone who is in a high position. For example, kings in that day might send out apostles to represent them. And when they did, those apostles carried with them the authority of the king himself. So when Jesus, as he prepares these apostles and sends them out, when he chooses them and sends them, he'll be assigning to them his very own authority so that what they say, what they teach, yes, even what they write, will carry with it the full weight of his own authority. So great is the future role of these apostles that they will be called. You can look there in Ephesians 2.20, uh, it reminds us that they will be called the foundation of the New Testament church. Upon them and upon their teaching, the church will be built, but yet not without Christ, right? Because what does that text remind us? That Christ himself is the chief cornerstone. He is the one who calls and uh, makes square, right? Squares out or makes right the rest of the foundation, these 12 apostles, they're, uh, you might remember Acts 4.13, they're called unschooled ordinary men. These unqualified men would be used in a mighty way. 
They'll be used to upend the world for the sake of Jesus's kingdom. Needless to say then, the choice of these 12 is a pretty serious task. This is serious business. And Jesus took it seriously, didn't he? He took it very seriously. We find him in verse 12 where? He goes up to the mountain. He goes up to a secluded place. And what does he do there? He prays. This is common for Jesus to do. He would leave. You've already seen it a couple of times. And Luke, he goes away to a desolate place to pray. But with context in mind, it's evident that he's praying about this very decision. He's praying about whom God would have him choose for this task. And so fervent was his prayer that Luke notes that all night he continued in prayer. I love this, right? Jesus pulled an all-nighter. Jesus stayed up all night fervently praying in full submission to his father who is in heaven. He fervently sought his will. He forsake sleep to make sure he was doing exactly what was desired of him. Now, uh, if you're like me, you might be prone to get lost in your imagination, right? You're, you begin to wonder if Jesus was agonizing over the choice of the one, right? Are you sure that one? Are you sure Judas? Are you sure or maybe it's just the choice of any of them, right? Maybe he's gotten to know them pretty well and he's like, really? Peter? Really? That young boy, John? Really? Really? I don't know. We won't know. You might get lost in thinking like that like I do. I think that's beyond the point. The point is for us to be reminded of how much seriousness Jesus took with such tasks. It's best for us to be reminded that while we're not tasked with decisions like that, we are often tasked with decisions that have great importance, are we not? Great importance for ourselves, for our families, for the church, for the lives of others. So I had to stop this week and ask this question. So I'll stop and ask you this question. How much time do you spend praying about such things? How much time do you spend praying about those big things? Maybe the question is how fervent are you in your prayers? Not calling all of us to pull all-nighters in our prayers, but perhaps we should. Perhaps we should. Well, if we're gonna begin to model that prayer in our life, we must, like Jesus, begin with remembering our dependence. He knew that his food was to do the will of the Father who sent him. He knew that he was absolutely dependent upon the Father who is in heaven. And it is in such dependence that Luke records Jesus's choice there in verses 14 through 16. You can look there again. He chooses Simon Peter. He chooses Peter. He chooses Peter's brother, Andrew. And he chooses James and John. You might remember them, the sons of Zebedee, those fishing companions of Peter that we met back in chapter five. And then there's Philip. And then there's Bartholomew, who was also called Nathaniel. You'll see him in John named Nathaniel. We see Matthew or Levi, the tax collector we met recently, and there's Thomas, we all know Thomas 
by the end of the gospels, right? There's Thomas, then there's James, the son of Alphaeus. And then there's Simon, the zealot. And there's Judas, the son of James, who was also called Thaddeus. And of course, there is Judas Iscariot, who Luke makes sure to know that you know that he is the one who became a traitor. These are the 12. These are the 12 whom Jesus calls to be his apostles, to be in the intense training program of emissary leadership. Now, from the world's perspective, these are not the types of men one would choose. These are not the types of men one would choose to perform a revolutionary work. But Jesus doesn't choose them because of any gifts or talents that they had. No, we can say he chose them because of their faith, right? Faith that they had in him, that's definitely a part of it. But he chose them in order to give them grace. He chose them to give them the gifts and give them the talents that they would need to carry out his mission. It wasn't, oh, this guy's good at this, so I'll give him this, and this guy's good. No, he chose them so that he could grant them, by his grace, the gifts needed to carry out the mission. He's not limited. Jesus is in no way limited by the resources they did or didn't have in their possession. He would give them everything they needed, including his spirit. Uh, The Christian author, you may have heard of him, Oswald Chambers, I think he was right when he said this, and I'll quote, God can achieve his purpose either through the absence of human power and resources or the abandonment of reliance on them. All through history, God has chosen and used nobodies because their unusual dependence on him made possible the unique display of his power and grace. He closes this way. He chose and he used somebodies only when they renounced dependence on their natural abilities and resources. God uses nobodies and somebodies, and he makes them all his people. Well, we're certainly not called to be apostles. That office was closed with the closing of the New Testament era, the canon. Uh, We're not called to be apostles, but we are nevertheless called to be Christ's representatives. In other places, we're told that we are ambassadors for Christ. So whether we are nobodies like these 12 apostles when Jesus called them, or perhaps we're somebodies just as they became, all of us need to do what? All of us need to put our confidence in Jesus alone and not in ourselves, not in our abilities. We put our confidence in Jesus alone so that his spirit can do the real work that's required of our calling. As I said before, it's only by grace and it's only by dependence upon God that we can do anything good for him and his kingdom. And that's what we learn from Jesus calling the 12. So after he chooses the 12, we now come to the second section of our text, and that's verses 17 through 26. And I'm going to call it, if you're taking notes, the values of kingdom living. The values of kingdom living. Luke tells us in verse 17, 
that after Jesus calls the 12, he comes down with them and he stands with them on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people, people from all Judea and Jerusalem and also as far away as the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. All these people had come, it says, to hear Jesus and to be healed by him and to be set free from their unclean spirits. This is a wonderful picture for many reasons, but let me give you one that you may not have thought of. This is a picture of what the future holds. It's a picture of the glorious future when a multitude of people will stand around the glorious Christ in heaven the 12 apostles and the 12 sons of Jacob. Remember there in the book of Revelation, they're there too before him. So here we have the 12 apostles there before him. What will they be doing? Seeking after Jesus, seeking his face in eternal worship and praise. Yes, that's what you'll be doing. The text tells us very clearly, the whole Bible tells us that that's what we'll be doing in heaven, worshiping. We will be worshiping. Beyond that, we're not gonna talk about, right? I don't have all the answers. We actually went through the book of Revelation. It doesn't really give us any of those answers, but the one thing, and it should be enough for us, is that we will be worshiping Jesus, worshiping God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in their presence. This, what we see here in Luke, is but only a glimpse of heaven. But verse 18 reminds us what we should know, and that it's all about the one at the center, It's all about Jesus. And this is how Luke makes this note. He says, power came out from Jesus. Power is emanating from Jesus. And it's healing all those who sought to touch him. Later in the book of Luke, we'll meet the woman who touched the hem of his his garment and was healed. Think about this. They're just standing there reaching for him, wanting to, and they're being healed because his power was coming out. Jesus is full of power. He's emanating with power. He's the one who holds the keys to the kingdom and he will establish this kingdom in his righteous power. And so now we have this picture of him standing before these disciples, standing before those who are seeking him to hear him and to be healed and to be set free. And the power is flowing from him. What a glorious foretaste of heaven where he will radiate upon us in his power. And so he begins in verses 20 through 26 to give a lengthy sermon. I guess that's what you do when you get a lot of people around you. You give a sermon. Now, right away, you'll recognize that there's a lot of similarity between what follows and what you find in Matthew chapters five through seven. You might know that. It's commonly called the Sermon on the Mount. And so when you come to this, it brings up crucial questions. So I'll just list some of those questions. Is this the same event as the one recorded in Matthew? Or is this similar teaching given in a different context? If it's the same event, why does Luke leave out so much that Matthew included? If it is different, why did Jesus, or excuse me, why did Jesus narrow down the content the way he did? Or why did Luke narrow it down? So many questions. Well, I'm happy to answer those for you right now. Scholars are not entirely sure, (laughs) me included. 
We're not really sure. Some like to sound more confident than others, but you would be hard pressed to find consistent answers, even in schools of thought like ours, schools that take the scriptures seriously. Now I have my own inclinations. I I actually lean toward it being a similar content given on a separate occasion, but my inclinations are not enough and I won't make definitive proclamations. In fact, you have two different preachers the next two weeks going through this content. You have Darren and you have Doug, okay? They might come to different conclusions and that's okay. That's okay. Those men take the word seriously, as you know, and they will preach the text at hand faithfully, I'm sure. And I think that's the most important thing that we can say about that, is that we handle the text before us faithfully, even when we don't have all the answers. But what we do have here in verses 20 through 23, we see Jesus presenting a series of beatitudes or blessings. And unlike Matthew right away, they're juxtaposed with a corresponding set of woes or condemnations. They actually line up the first beatitude with the first woe and so on and so forth. These will begin to form the foundation for what it will be like to live for Christ and his kingdom. These values will characterize all the nobodies who will become somebodies to serve him for his sake. And so let's briefly look at them together, these kingdom values. The first value comes in verse 20. Jesus says, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. To understand this, we need to realize that the Bible has a lot to say about the poor. That the Old Testament even distinguishes between four distinct groups of people who are poor. Did you know that? There's four distinct groups. Let me go over them really quickly. There are the people who are poor as a result of tragedy or catastrophe. People who are plunged into poverty because of conditions outside of them, like a natural disaster or something like that. That's the first group. There are the people who are poor as a result of oppression, usually at the hands of a wicked king or government who have everything ripped from them unjustly, oppression. There are people who are poor for righteousness sake. There are the people who choose poverty, who choose poverty to serve the Lord, right? And then the fourth group are the people who are poor as a result of their own laziness. They're the people who are poor based on their choices. Certainly Jesus is speaking about the first three here in verse 20. He speaks of those who experience poverty because of tragedy or oppression. And perhaps more pointedly, he is speaking of those who have chosen poverty for the sake of righteousness. In fact, Matthew clarifies that, right? Blessed are the poor, in spirit, right? So uh, Matthew includes that for us, I think, to help us. But think about people like Simon Peter and Levi. I mean, Simon Peter had just experienced the greatest catch of fish, maybe in the history of mankind. You know how much money that they left there? They left it all behind to follow Jesus. Levi was a rich, a filthy rich tax collector. And he said, I don't need that anymore. I just wanna follow Jesus. Right? 
I just wanna follow him. Surely it is these that even faced with loss in this world can rest in knowing that I may not have everything here, but the kingdom is mine, that all the blessings of heaven belong to them. We can be sure that the fourth group though is not included here because the Bible never celebrates laziness nor oppression. It never celebrates poverty at the expense of neglect. Blessed are the poor. Now the corresponding condemnation is found in verse 24. You can see that there for you and how it corresponds, but woe to you who are rich for you have received your consolation. Now it's not woe to you if you have a lot of wealth, that's not the point. The point here is, is woe to you who have put their hope in their riches. Woe to you who find their satisfaction. Woe to those who find their security in their riches, the riches of this world, those who rest in earthly accumulations. There's a lot of consolation in that, isn't there? When you, if you've ever found yourself in need, you know, because when you don't find yourself in need, you know how consoling that is. That's their consolation. Well, Jesus will have much more to say about this in the text to come. The second value is found in verse 21. Jesus says, blessed are you who are hungry now for you shall be satisfied. In mind here is probably what we've already referenced in our service today in Psalm 63, uh, kingdom living requires a hunger and a thirst for righteousness, the desire to be filled with the things of Christ, to be satisfied with all that God is for us in Christ Jesus. But woe to those, if you look there at verse 25, who are merely satisfied with the things of this world. Woe to those who are satisfied even with sin. The third value is found in verse 21. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. This is a good reminder for us that the mourning and pain of this world are not the final chapter of the human experience for those who follow Jesus. True and lasting joy will most certainly come in the morning dawn of heavenly glory. But woe to those as verse 25 reminds us, woe to those who think that earthly joy and the pursuit of earthly joy, or I might even say the ones who think that following their heart, the pursuit of joy, woe to those who are merely satisfied with that, who are merely satiated with the things of this world. Woe to those who think that that joy beyond satisfaction, that that joy is all there is. If you're here this morning and you believe that the only joy there is is what you experience here on earth, know that eternal heavenly joy is so much more. Though you may weep and mourn now, joy will be everlasting in heaven. The fourth and final value is found in verses 22 and 23. And this one might be the most perplexing, right? The one that may not register the best with our Western mindset and our comfortable Christianity. Look there again with me. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and when they revile you and when they spurn your name as evil on account of the son of man, or I might say on the account of me, Rejoice in that day and leap for joy for behold, your reward is great in heaven 
for so their fathers also did to the prophets. I mean, how's that for a life goal? How's that? If you're excluded, if you're hated, if you're reviled, if even your name is spurned, if you are any of these things, not because you're a jerk, if you are any of these things because of Jesus, because of who Christ is for you, Jesus says you're blessed. Not only that, he invites you to rejoice when that happens. Why? Oh, he's made it clear. You're joining a long list full of God's people before and yes, after. You're full. You're in line with many who've experienced the same thing. But nothing that happens to you now can take from you the reward that is yours in heaven. The world's hate pales in comparison to the love and to the forgiveness and to the acceptance you have with God. That's why he says rejoice. None of that. When you speak the truth in my name, when you stand up for me, when you live for me and people hate you because of it, rejoice. Because that is so much better. Look at verse 26. Woe to you when all you have is people who speak well of you. Now, it's, of course, good to have a good name, right? It's good to have a good name, to be well-spoken of, but not at the expense of speaking the truth, not at the expense of standing up for Jesus, and certainly not at the cost of denying him. Rather, he said, blessed are those who suffer for my sake, the values of kingdom living that Jesus presents here and just these four, they're really just the tip of the iceberg. For in the coming verses, in the coming weeks, he's gonna reveal even more. Loving your enemies, right? Think about what's coming. But from what we do see here, we can see that his values are completely opposite to the world's values but that's okay. You know why? Because his values turn the world upside down. His values. And when we preach him and his power turns the world upside down and he rescues people, Jesus rescues people from sin and death. We see it played out in the lives of people like the apostles. For aside from Judas, the traitor, okay, uh, 10 of the 11 of them die as martyrs for the sake of Jesus Christ. You may not have known that. Of the 11 minus Judas here, 10 of them will die a martyr's death. Several of them even crucified like Jesus was. One, you may know who I'm speaking of, John, is not martyred in such a way, but you can't deny that John suffered for the sake of of Christ. Think about that for a moment. These men gladly went into dying for Christ. We also see these values reflected in people like David Livingston, who I mentioned earlier in the introduction. Missionaries and others who forsake everything for the call to make Christ known to the nations. And of course, we see these values reflected in the mirror of our own lives. 
or do we? When we look in the mirror of our own lives, do we see these values reflected? That's a question that we all must face. And it's the question I'm gonna close with now. Are you, am I, living by the values of the kingdom? Not in our own strength, our own abilities and our own goodness, but through the spirit indwelling in us, are we living the values of the kingdom? Maybe, is that most everyone's answer? Sometimes, not as much as I'd like to. We all fall short. Take heart, you have a great savior. You have a great redeemer. You have a faithful God who hears your call for help, who responds to your call for help and gives you the grace and the strength to live for him. When's the last time you asked him for such strength? May it be today and may it be each and every day of our lives. Amen and amen.